Welcome to Sci Section. My name is Lumi, and I am your journalist for this episode. We're joined here today with Dr. Aaron Muller, the Program Manager and Science Director at Moat Marine Laboratories Elizabeth Moore International Center for Coral Reef Research and Restoration. Thanks for taking the time to meet with me today. Thanks for having me, Lumi. Let's just start from the very basics. So, what kind of organism is a coral, and what are coral reefs? Yeah, that's a great question. And corals appear to be relatively simple. Sometimes when you look at them from the outside, they're like these colorful rocks that you see out in the water. But they're one of the most complex organisms in the world, I think.、Um, corals are actually an animal. They're made up of individual polyps that kind of look like little anemones if you kind of get down really close and look at them. And those polyps. Can live individually, or most often they live in a colony, and that's why we kind of refer to corals as colonies. These these little polyps that、um, are connected to each other, and that's the animal portion of the coral. They are these、uh, little polyps with tentacles that kind of stick out, and they grow through creating more and more polyps through time.、Um, they also have a really strong physical structure because they secrete a skeleton made of calcium carbonate. So it's like like bones, like us, you know. But they are secreting that from that polyp underneath that layer and building up kind of these boulders or branching、um, corals through time, which give those corals their different structures. And then to complicate things even more, corals, as the animal themselves, for the most part, don't live kind of alone. They have a unique mutualistic relationship. With microbes,、uh, one of them in particular is a symbiotic algae,、uh, generally called zooxanthellae. And this algae live inside of the coral.、Uh, it's a little single cell algae that photosynthesizes from the sun. But the products of that photosynthesis actually、uh, are a lot of the food that the corals consume. So the、uh, zooxanthellae provide food for the coral, and then the coral provide a nice home for the zooxanthellae. And then, in addition to those two organisms.、Um, You also have a suite of bacteria. Some are、um, commensal, some are、uh, probiotics, and some potentially could be pathogenic. That also live in concert with this animal of the coral, and so it's an extremely complex relationship that has to really all work out well in order for those corals to grow, be healthy, and, and eventually, hopefully, reproduce. Which is what what we want them to do for population persistence. Um, and then your question about coral reefs: What are they in general? Coral reefs、right. are the hard structure that、um, accumulate often through thousands of years of accretion, and that accretion can be from often the skeletons of coral. So as corals grow, they're secreting that calcium carbonate skeleton. When they die, that skeleton becomes a part of that physical reef structure. And so, the more corals you have living and growing, you know that coral reef actually can、uh, grow through time as it further accretes. You know, as things change in the world, like sea level rise、um, and things. You know, you have these corals that can grow and make more reefs, and and those reefs in general can provide a, a ton of different、um, what we call ecosystem services, different benefits that humans use every single day, whether you know it or not. Interesting. So, can you talk more about why coral reefs are so important to the ecosystem and to humans? Yeah, that's a really great question, and 
one of the things I love about working with coral reefs is because they are so, they're such an incredibly important ecosystem. So biologically, they're the most diverse ecosystems in our ocean. About 25% of marine life rely on uh, coral reefs at one point or another in their life stage. Um, but in addition to that incredible biodiversity, uh, reefs in general provide a lot of services to humans directly. So that physical structure that we just talked about with the reef offshore of land actually absorbs wave energy and in doing so reduces erosion and protects our shorelines. Um, so that can help you know, save us on uh, property destruction or any type of issues that could be related to um, wave force or wave height from storms. So they really help protect our land and our property. Um, coral reefs are actually a really important source of novel medicines. So there's organisms that only live in coral reefs, and those, those organisms are incredibly unique, and they create these unique compounds that you can't find anywhere else in the world. And we can harvest some of those compounds and use them to fight things like cancer or drug-resistant bacteria or memory loss. Um, all of those are examples of, of ways that we're harvesting medicine from the ocean. And then they're a huge economic driver. So for example, Florida's coral reef, um, which expands from about central southern Florida all the way down to Key West and west of Key West to the dry tortugas is estimated to be worth at least $8 billion, with a B, billion dollars to the state of Florida. Um, wow. Helps support over 70,000 local jobs and um, helps to attract, you know, 16 million visitors a year to our state. So it's like a, you know, boom to our economy. It, it's uh, incredibly important for our heritage and for ecosystem health and biodiversity. So coral reefs are amazing, amazing ecosystems. That's really fascinating. So despite their importance, in recent years we're hearing that coral reefs are dying like all over the world. So what are happening to the coral reefs? Yeah, um, it is unfortunate. I, you know, I say this almost on a, a daily basis, but you know, we are we're in the fight of our lives to try to save coral reef ecosystems because they're losing them at an unprecedented rate worldwide. Um, so some of the major issues that are affecting reefs around the world are primarily increasing water temperatures um, from global climate change, and temperature is really important because corals live really close to their thermal tolerance, meaning only a couple degrees warmer in the water. And that symbiotic relationship that we talked about in the beginning about between the zooxanthellae and the coral animal actually breaks down when the water mm -hmm. temperatures are high. They, the corals spit out those zooxanthellae and they turn white because the zooxanthellae actually are, are what are providing the beautiful colors that we see for corals in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why we call bleaching because the corals are, are turning white. So with that loss of zooxanthellae, the corals, you know, will eventually starve to death. So that unfortunately is happening um, more often and more severe in places all around the world. Um, and then, you know, locally at different reefs, you have other issues like in the Florida reef tract, we have huge disease outbreaks that are occurring that are decimating a lot of our populations that are endemic to our region. Um, which could be related to things like climate change, could also be related to things like water quality um, and habitat uh, degradation issues. And then there's also ocean acidification, which is um, 
the declining pH of our ocean. As increases in the atmosphere, it actually gets absorbed into the ocean. And through a series of chemical reactions, it reduces the pH, makes the water more acidic. And when that happens, corals have a really hard time um, acquiring the, the ions that they need to grow their skeleton. And they actually can growing. some of them could even potentially dissolve their skeleton through time. Um, and so that is a major issue that we see becoming even more important as time goes on, as carbon dioxide increases in the atmosphere. It's a lot of issues to deal with. Mm. I see. So you're part of the Coral Health and Disease Research Team. Can you talk about your research? Yeah, yeah. So my program, the Coral Health and Disease Program at Moat, really focuses on what makes coral sick. So what are the major global and local threats that are affecting corals primarily uh, focused on the Florida reef tract, but also what makes corals healthy and the unique responses that we see sometimes when we expose different genotypes of corals to stress. So like you and I, we are not related. So we are different genotypes because we have different DNA. Um, corals, you can actually grow through fragmentation, very similar to like a cutting of a plant. If you're mm -hmm. a gardener, that's a way to really easily propagate lots of plants. You can propagate lots of corals similarly too, but so you kind of, in the population as a whole, you have a mixture of those um, identical twins out there, and then you have a mixture of different genotypes. And what we see is that the genotypes sometimes respond very differently to these threats. And so what my research has really focused on now is figuring out which corals are resilient to some of those major threats, um, trying to identify the mechanism behind that, um, whether it's genetic or microbial or... Um, something that, you know, we haven't even explored yet. And I feed that information into Moat's Coral Restoration Program. So, you know, we have a large number of people that focus on coral propagation and outplanning for reef restoration purposes. Um, you know, we don't want to put corals back out onto the reef that are just going to die at the next bleaching event. So we want to, you know, increase genetic biodiversity in our outplant population, but also make sure that the corals that we're putting out there have a good chance of surviving, you know, for decades to come. And so a lot of my research helps to um, guide what corals they're putting out, um, what genotypes should be present, what's the genetic distribution of them. And, and then we can field test some of these experiments to make sure that what we see in the lab is, is really happening also underwater. That's really cool. So you're testing, basically experimenting with different genotype to see which ones are more resistant to the disease? Yeah, so we'll look at things like disease resistant um, genetic strains and I have um, a really nice project with collaborators from Oregon State University who are studying the microbiome, so the bacterial community of those disease resistant versus the disease susceptible genotypes because there seems to be a, a really unique signature that's probably driving that. Uh, we also look at thermal tolerance, um, so which mm -hmm. ones are able to withstand, not just withstand increasing climate change or increasing water temperatures due to climate change, but still be able to continue to grow and reproduce um, so that, you know, the corals that we put out there, you know, next summer don't just bleach and die. We need to make sure that as those water temperatures, unfortunately, continue to climb, 
you know, we have a population that can at least withstand that until we get, you know, climate change under control. Okay, I see. So you mentioned about a disease outbreak in Florida. Can you talk more about that? Like what happened? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, disease is a natural part of any ecosystem, but there's two large outbreaks that have really shaped the community of corals on the Florida Reef Tract. One happened decades ago um, in the late 70s and early 80s. It was called white band disease, and it affected uh, like 90% of our populations of the staghorn and elkhorn corals. So these are the two main branching corals that are found throughout the Caribbean and throughout Florida. And so that outbreak, which lasted multiple years and had large geographic reach, really caused it uh, or started a very significant precipitous decline in the coral cover within the Florida Reef Tract. And then um, in 2014, another outbreak began that we're still entrenched in, unfortunately. It is called the stony coral tissue loss disease. This particular disease doesn't seem to affect those staghorn and elkhorn corals that were affected in the 80s, which is quite interesting, but it does affect over 20 to 25 and more of the other species that are kind of the last vestiges of corals out on the reef track. So like the brain corals, the boulder corals, um, those are the ones that are getting most affected by the stony coral tissue loss disease. So it has continued to spread. It began somewhere off the coast of Miami in around 2014. It has appears to be using water currents to spread. Um, it's now pretty much throughout the entire Florida reef tract except the dry tortugas, but it has jumped to other regions throughout the Caribbean and is causing you know, significant decline um, as it's kind of moving through the region. Uh, so since that outbreak, I mean, we've been, you know, kind of putting a, all of our forces into understanding the disease. Um, we're a significant contributor to this incredible um, organization called the Florida Department of Environmental Protection Disease Advisory Committee, which is like a consortium of experts in the region that are studying the disease, um, you know, in all different ways. Um, there's members of that team that are looking at what's the pathogen. There's members of the team looking at the ecology in the water. There's hydrodynamic modelers. There's people that are applying antibiotics to try to stop the disease from progressing and having some good success with that. So um, it's a, unfortunately, you know, an extremely devastating disease, but it also has created this unprecedented opportunity to um, be a part of this huge regional and global effort to try to uh, figure out how to combat it. Yeah, that's so cool you're doing that. So can you talk about the academic path that led you to your work today and how did you get interested in marine biology in the first place? Yeah, it's kind of funny that I ended up at Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium because um, my love for the ocean really started at a visit to kind of our local aquarium in upstate New York. We, I grew up in, um, in the Lakes region and we had family vacations where we would just cross the border into Canada and we would go um, to the kind of community aquarium there and that's where I started my love for the ocean um, and so it's kind of nice to be able to come back full circle and, and be at a, a public aquarium that you know hopefully shapes like mine to, to go into this field 
Um, but ever since I was, you know, a little girl, I just, I knew I wanted to study the ocean. If I was going to have a career that I spent most of my time developing, why not do it while in the ocean and studying the amazing organisms that are there? Um, so, you know, I was very driven individual. Um, I went to a high school um, camp in Long Island that really focused on marine science that I loved. And, and I ended up going to undergraduate um, at Florida Institute of Technology, which is a really well-respected marine biology undergraduate program. Um, during my time there, I uh, grew really interested in coral reef science, and there was a professor there that studied, um, did his PhD in the Great Barrier Reef and kind of hopped from Australia over to Florida to develop his career, and so he really became a significant mentor of mine. Um, and I ended up staying on with him for my graduate work, both my master's and my PhD. But during that same time, he encouraged me to go, um, you know, get experience in the field. And so while I did my graduate work, I also worked for the U.S. Geological Survey in the U.S. Virgin Islands and the National Park Service in the U.S. Virgin Islands as a biologist studying coral diseases um, because it was the most significant threat affecting their coral populations at the time. So that really... Um, opened my eyes to the issue. Um, it shaped the future of my research, and I'm super grateful that, you know, I, I had so many opportunities to get my feet wet and uh, get immersed in the science that I was able to eventually bring to Moat Marine Lab. That's really amazing. So um, what are some of the challenges you have encountered in your research? Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> Um, I mean, one of the biggest challenges that we have faced for decades and we continue to face today is that um, with coral diseases, it's really difficult to identify a particular pathogen. Um, so it's hard for us to capture marine bacteria in a petri dish, which is part of the process for identifying pathogenic organisms. You have to be able to grow it kind of in this, you know, controlled environment and that's just not possible for most marine bacteria which we believe are, are the causes of many coral diseases are, are seem to be marine bacteria but they seem very responsive to things like antibiotics you can't just dump antibiotics into the ocean of course you know but you can treat corals in a laboratory setting with antibiotics or other types of therapies to try to figure out the pathogen but the elusiveness of identifying coral disease pathogens has you know plagued us for decades. And it's the same thing with the stony coral tissue loss disease. Uh, we know bacteria play an, an important role, um, but, uh, you know, we haven't been able to really isolate a single pathogen that could be identified as, as the bacterial agent responsible. And, and some people even think it's maybe a non or abiotic factor that's actually mm -hmm. being transmitted. And so there's you know, there's a ton of work uh, to do to try to figure it out. And we, you know, we maybe never will. I mean, that's pretty common in wildlife diseases, unfortunately. So that has been a big challenge in my research. On that note, thank you so much for talking with me today, Dr. Muller. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure talking with you as well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and that's it for this episode of Sci Section. Thank you so much. <laughs>